welcome to Breakpoints, the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacist Podcast. My name is Erin McCreary, and I'm a clinical assistant professor and infectious diseases pharmacist at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and UPMC. Today, I am joined by two amazing panelists to discuss the COVID-19 vaccine landscape in the United States with a focus on equitable distribution and vaccine hesitancy. We're calling this pod the vaccine, and it was sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from Janssen Biotech. With no further ado, I want to introduce my team today. So first, I have Dr. Jacinda Abdul-Mutakabir, or Dr. Jam, as she likes to be called, an an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Loma Linda University. She recently completed her postgraduate fellowship training at the Anti-Infective Research Laboratory at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, where she also received her MPH. In early 2020, Dr. Jam was recognized among ECMID's 30 under 30 outstanding young scientists, in which she was quoted as saying that as a minority woman researcher, she has worked ardently to promote the necessity of women in color in the research arena. If you follow her on Twitter, you can see she's been absolutely crushing it by getting the word out and vaccinating members of the community for the entirety of this pandemic. So Jacinda, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So happy to be here today. Next, we have Dr. Jeanette Bouchard, who's an infectious diseases and stewardship clinical pharmacy specialist at Wake Med Health and Hospitals. Jeanette is a graduate of Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver, Colorado, and she completed her PGI-1 pharmacy practice residency at UPMC Shadyside in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which, follow Jeanette, that's where I work. Uh, She then completed her infectious diseases PGY-2 pharmacy residency and fellowship training at the University of South Carolina Prisma Health Hospital. Jeanette also created and updates the Society of Infectious Diseases Pharmacists informational videos on vaccines, which you can find at sidp.org slash COVID-19. Jeanette, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here with everyone. No, thank you guys so much. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. I think this is probably the most important topic in all of public health and healthcare right now. So thank you for your time. Jeanette, I want you to kick us off by describing to our audience the available vaccines in the United States, noting that there are other vaccines around the world, but for the focus of this podcast, we'll be focusing on our practice, which is all in the United States of America. Of course, currently there are three available vaccines in the United States, two mRNA-based vaccines created by Pfizer and Moderna, and one viral vector-based vaccine from Janssen or Johnson & Johnson. I'll start with the first FDA-approved COVID-19 vaccine in the United States, Comirnaty, or BNT162B2, created by Pfizer. This is an mRNA-based two-dose vaccine series with doses at least 21 days apart that's FDA-approved for people ages 16 and older and EUA-approved for those ages 12 to 15, They also have a potential additional dose in those who are 12 and older and who are moderate to severely immunocompromised with the additional dose taking place at least 28 days following the second dose. In the phase three pivotal trial for Comirnaty, over 35,000 participants were studied and the vaccine was found to have an efficacy of 95%. This efficacy persisted at the six month follow-up time point. There was only one case of severe disease and no COVID related deaths in the vaccine arm. Next, we have mRNA-1273, which was created by Moderna. This vaccine is an mRNA-based vaccine and is currently EUA-approved for people ages 18 and older in a two-dose vaccine series with doses at least 28 days apart, with a potential additional dose for those who are moderate to severely immunocompromised, additional dose taking place again 28 days following the second dose. In their phase three pivotal trial, Over 30,000 participants were studied and showcased a vaccine efficacy of 94.1%. There were no cases of severe disease or COVID-related deaths in the vaccine arm. Last, we have AD26, COV2S, or Janssen's vaccine candidate. This is a single-dose recombinant adenovirus type 26 vector that is EUA-approved in people 18 and older. In their phase three trial, over 40,000 participants were studied and the vaccine showcased an efficacy of 66.9%, 14 days following a single dose. There were no cases of COVID-19 requiring medical intervention or causing death in the vaccine arm. There were numerically higher VTE seizure and tinnitus events in the trial. However, these were not statistically different from placebo. 
Overall, all three of these vaccines met the FDA pre-specified criteria for vaccine efficacy and were highly efficacious against symptomatic and severe disease, which we know is one of the most important aspects of vaccines. So we're trying to keep people out of the hospital, right? But since clinical trials in nature are only able to pick up on safety events that happen per 1,000 patients or so, I want to touch briefly on the safety data that has evolved since vaccinating the public, specifically Guillain-Barre and thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome, or TTS, after Janssen, and myocarditis following the mRNA-based vaccines. We don't have a lot of time to go into specific details of the events, but I want to just highlight for you the event rates that were recently published in an MMWR by Rosenblum and colleagues. For Guillain-Barre and Janssen, the event rate is around 7 per million doses, and for TTS, Granted, this varies based on population, but even in our highest risk females, those between 30 and 49 years old, the event rate is eight to 10 per million doses administered. For myocarditis in our highest risk, age, highest risk age group, which would be males between the ages of 18 and 29, the rate is about 24 cases per million second doses. To put these numbers in perspective, there's a great table in this MMWR that highlights benefits seen with the vaccines in comparison. One example, for every million doses of Janssen in males 50 to 64, 1,800 hospitalizations, 480 ICU admissions, and 140 deaths from COVID-19 can be prevented. Now, ASIP is continually reviewing the data for these safety signals, as well as the long-term effects of these, such as myocarditis. They do have a lot of great slide sets um, in their reviews of the safety data and how many times they've done reviews of the data. Their strong statement is that benefits from these vaccines greatly outweigh the very rare risks we are seeing now that we have fully vaccinated around 177 million people in the United States. And I would have to agree. I mean, those benefit numbers speak for themselves, especially when you compare the rates of the events. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much for that overview. I have a very important question for you both. How cool are these vaccines? So cool. People for months that I love the <laughs> mRNA platform as well as our new identifiers, like our viral vector platforms. I think there's came out so fast and so cool that they work really well. Yeah, no, definitely I, new tattoo ideas for me. Definitely getting a spike protein tattoo. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. This is the coolest thing that's ever happened in my lifetime, I think. I don't know. I hep that the, hep <laughs> the, the hep C drugs were pretty cool, but yeah. you know, all equally medical miracle, right? These are so effective. They're so safe. And the whole concept that these were built on these platforms that the world health organization and other global organizations have invested in for decades. So that for this exact purpose, so that if we have a pandemic, you can rapidly build a vaccine because we're using these kinds of technologies. So I just think it's like the most amazing thing ever. I love the vaccines. Second, very important question for you both. Which vaccine did you get? Pfizer. Team Pfizer. Yeah. Okay. I also got Pfizer. <laughs> oh, I got Moderna. Really? I did. Yes. Which My I husband know. got it. <laughs> oh, great. Great guy. And, it, and that leads us to our next question, actually. So I think this is an important point. Like, does it matter which vaccine you get? So we started the pandemic with the best vaccine is the first one you can get into your arm mentality, especially when we were in the time of having to equitably distribute vaccines based on age and then based on risk factors, et cetera. And so we all said, you know, the best vaccine is the first one you can get into your arm. Is that still true? Um, so I'm going to say yes. So of course, you know, I'll leave room for you both to um, offer your your opinions. However, I am still a very big proponent of the vaccine that is available to you is the vaccine that you should get. We are still in that place where we are trying to reach herd immunity. And I am 100% committed to the idea that these vaccines that are available to us will um, assist us in doing so. I think for me, I always have to navigate the statistics uh, for the patients and I have to make sure that I make them relative to um, the patients that I that I talk to when I try to navigate them through that, that vaccination process of, should I get Pfizer? Should I get Moderna? Should I get Johnson & Johnson? I can't tell you the amount of times that I literally, you know, have to like take the white coat off, you know, get comfortable, settle in, and, you know, get ready to talk in statistics and, um, 
to talk specifics and um, really because I work primarily in a minoritized community when I'm vaccinating, I have to really be dedicated to ensuring that I explain just the, the minoritized individuals that were included in the study, that I explain the ethics behind how it is that we conduct different studies and that I explained all of that information as we are working to rebuild those trusting relationships with minoritized communities, especially with respect to the vaccines. So typically my conversations go, you know, it's always, Dr. Jam, can you talk me through, you know, this vaccine? And, or it's, it usually goes, Dr. Jam, I want to get the Pfizer vaccine because I heard that's the best one. And I say, we're not doing Pfizer today. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about Moderna. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> you, walk, you so, walked into a Johnson and Johnson clinic, honey. So. <laughs> so that's our problem now. So let's sit down and let's talk about it. But then I run them through the stats. So I, I start with talking about the minoritized individuals that were included in these studies. So I talk about the black individuals that were included, the um, the Native American, the Latino Latinx, the um, elderly individuals that, or excuse me, more senior individuals. I don't like to call individuals greater than or uh, equal to 55 elderly. My parents would have me <laughs> if they heard that I was talking. I was going to say, my parents are like <laughs> reaching 65 and they listen to the podcast and they're like, so they would have you talk me. about this age greater than 65 and we don't feel old <laughs> you say elderly huh but yeah. I but I think that you know the drug companies did such a phenomenal job to ensure that they had adequate representation of the racial groups even the Moderna study they paused their study to ensure that they adequately represented um black participants in their study always make sure to elaborate on this point because I get that oh it wasn't enough you know black individuals included and I said well no across each study it was about nine percent you know it's a, it was about nine point three percent in Pfizer about ten point two percent in Moderna about seventeen point two percent in Johnson and Johnson what is that quite representative of the thirteen point four percent in the United States demographics same with you know Latino Latinx we had greater than like twenty percent across each study we had um, a good amount of our our seniors or elderly or more seasoned folks. I'm saying elderly and senior because I know my parents will be watching and I want them to feel me talking badly about them on the podcast. But I make sure to say, you know, that about half of those um, enrollees were a part of those age groups. So they made sure to represent those individuals that were disproportionately affected um, by the COVID-19 pandemic because they wanted to ensure that when these vaccines were made available that we saw they actually worked across these groups. But then I talk about, you know, when we assess the um, Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, when we talk about, you know, in terms of how many, how many episodes or how many events of COVID-19 did we see? Well, when we look at the group that was vaccinated, we saw what eight cases in that vaccination group versus 165 or 162 in that group that did, that was not vaccinated. So now we're in that place where we see that 95% efficacy or you're 20 times more likely to be protected should you be vaccinated, um, which, which is what the Pfizer vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine study, excuse me, showed us. And then with the Moderna trial, we saw 11 cases after that second dose, right, versus 185. So then once again, we see that 94.1% that Dr. Fauci always says so eloquently. And then you are still about 20 times more likely to be protected. But then when I have that conversation of, oh, well, you said eight in Pfizer, you said 11, you know, in Moderna, I have that conversation of, okay, well, you know, if you get 95, 94% on the test and 95% on the test, what's that grade you have on your, on your report card? Still an A, right? So, you, we, I mean, and even with quite similar. 100% and even with the single dose adenovirus vaccine, I mean, it, the hospitalizations and deaths were what, Jeanette, zero, you, you know, the <laughs> data right. better than zero yeah. right that's pretty good those are pretty, pretty good, good odds um and i think that is you know something i i, I try to really focus on that point for sure mm -hmm. um, jeanette do you agree then the first is it still pretty much the first vaccine you can get is the best one yeah i, I say i have to agree with dr jam on this one i come from a little bit different place because i'm giving a lot of vaccines in the hospital and so our hospital system is really fortunate to have been able to provide all three vaccines at one point um and we're able to kind of career and back and forth if like one patient needs that second dose of moderna but 
in order to get vaccines in arms, we kind of push for the uh, Johnson and Johnson or Janssen vaccine because it's an easy in the hospital to kind of one and done. Um, you don't have to worry about setting up a second appointment. And so we're really working on a lot of our counseling with patients because the number is smaller, but educating them that the Johnson and Johnson vaccine was studied during a different time point in this pandemic, um, as well as a different population. So they did have a higher percentage of the minority groups in there, which we know have more severe disease and more severe outcomes in COVID-19, which I'm sure Dr. Jam can touch on. There are some pretty good papers out there that kind of assess all of the differences and why you can't take those numbers as face value. So I spend a lot of time talking to patients about that aspect as well, that hey, the Johnson & Johnson, just because it's a smaller number does not mean it's going to be worse for you. And it may have like longer protection in the long run. We just don't know about that much yet. That's such right. a good point. I love that. I th- the logistics too, we, uh, emergency departments, another, if you're going to, if you're going to operationalize vaccinating or offering it in the emergency department, J&J might make more sense there for the reasons you listed. Um, mm-hmm. I do think we are, so I agree. I agree. The best, every, just as long as you get vaccinated, I don't care. And I'll give you cake and applaud you. But I think that we definitely know now there may be some patient specific considerations. So maybe women, you know, 18 to 50 or whatnot, maybe consider an mRNA vaccine um, and then other, other kind of caveats. But for the most part, yes. But I think this is something healthcare providers, like you guys said, not struggle with. I don't want to, it's not a struggle because counseling about vaccines and giving vaccines is the greatest joy ever. But it's hard. This is a pandemic of it's it's a fight against this virus and a fight against social media, right? Patients mm-hmm. hear numbers on the TV or on Facebook and they come to us with these numbers and like breaking that down what they, you know, their preconceived thing of what of how they've interpreted these numbers we're throwing around and then building it back up um, in a patient friendly way. That's really difficult. And I think one thing I try to talk about, especially, you know, patients like, oh, Earlier, I think now we're at the millions and millions and millions have been vaccinated and maybe I hear this less, but earlier when people were like, it hasn't been studied enough, when it was studied in 50 to 100,000 patients, I used to be like, you know, Sifiderocol came to the market and after a 151 person trial and or the FD- with like 30 patients in their trial. Right. Yeah. Tango too. Or the fact that these, these trials have more, like I went back because I mean, when you are, um, and if any of the listeners here are part of, you know, the black community, when you are talking to members of the black community, you better have your facts. You're going to get haze. So, so when I'm presenting and I'm talking about, you know, vaccines, I, they, you know, I knew I was going to get that question of, well, how many, um, how many participants did the other studies have? So I went back and looked at, you know, the HPV, um, the Gardasil vaccine um, trial, and it took them 10 years to enroll the number, not even the, the, the equal number of participants in even one of the vaccine trials that we have. So I think it took them 10 years to enroll 30,000 participants in their trial. And here we are, you know, in six months, we have more individuals that have participated in these vaccine studies than ever. And I, I'm in awe when I hear that. I'm like, did you, do you not even understand you know, what's happening here? This is crazy. That's a, that's a really good point. Like mm-hmm. going back and looking at all of these vaccines that people have already received and being like, listen, this is what was happening when like the HPV vaccine came out or the, the new pneumococcal vaccine came out. We weren't even compared to the amount of data that we have currently on these vaccines. And I think that helps really drive a lot of points home of, we have, you don't need to be hesitant about it anymore. We have enough information to kind of show us and guide us the way um, that these are safe vaccines that we should be using to help end this. What do you guys say? Because I want to talk about the safety piece in counseling first, because I think that's a little easier because they're so amazingly safe. And then I want to get into every other reason people might not be vaccinated. So I'm going to come back to Jeanette, what you just said, and people with hesitancies. So first, the safety. So overwhelmingly, I think you guys, you know, we all have our spiel about how safe they are. Other than like after my second vaccine, I was in bed for 20 hours. I like the muscle aches were so real. I have never underappreciated a word more than myalgia. Like I've read it in all of my training in, in medicine and until I had myalgias, I was like, this is awful. However, I would do it a hundred <laughs> times over. So that was good. It was good for me to feel that because now I empathize with my patients more. But anyway, so safety, what do you say to a patient when they are the 0.1%? 
So maybe their daughter had a demyelinating syndrome after receiving a pertussis vaccine, or they had Guillain-Barre to an influenza vaccine. And, you know, they are the 0.1% that had these horrible adverse events to vaccines in the past, but they still are open-minded to getting their COVID vaccine. Like, have you had that conversation with anyone? And even if not, like, you know, how would you, do you think you would talk through that? I had something happen. I was actually just thinking about it um, this morning. So um, I had a patient, actually, she's pregnant. And um, it was when the vaccines first came out. So it was when, um, it was when the Moderna vaccine had just become available. And um, she was working at the registration table and we were, uh, I was assisting and precepting the students at the clinic. And I was giving someone else some advisement about the vaccine and she was listening to it. So she pulled me over like, you know, gently and indiscreetly um, to the side. And she said, you know, I am pregnant. What do they say about pregnant women getting the vaccine? Do you think that I should get it? I'm really nervous because, um, you know, I have a baby. I'm, well, you know, I'm delivering this baby soon and I don't want anything to happen. And we hadn't really had any information in regards to the vaccine and pregnancy. So um, at that time, ACOG had just, you know, signed on and they said that they supported, you know, pregnant women receiving the vaccine. But I think the biggest thing for me was to remain empathetic with her. At the end of the day, I am not pregnant. I have never been pregnant. And I don't know what it means and how it is to, you know, be preparing for a child and to have to care for a child and to have that worry that she had. So um, instead, I gave her the facts. I explained to her the way that the mRNA vaccines work. I told her that it is a um, low, it's the likelihood of that actually crossing the placenta and affecting her baby, as well as her, is low. Nevertheless, you know, these have not been explicitly studied in, in pregnant women. The, the evidence that I'm giving you, the conversation we're having, is not based on pregnant women results. So, um, you know, I was just transparent with her. I gave her the um, the benefits of being vaccinated versus not being vaccinated, especially with her being a pregnant woman. And, you know, what being vaccinated can mean for her child as far as her child being protected against COVID. And she actually went ahead and she received the Moderna vaccine. So um, I think about her often because I hope that she's okay. And I hope that, you know, her, her baby's okay. And I hope that she's at peace with the decision that she made. But I know that, you know, that really kind of opened me up to um, the conversations that I have every day now, just remain, remaining empathetic and remaining transparent with the um, information aspect of it. That's amazing. I'm sure her baby has little antibodies and it's just incredible. So Jeanette, what are your thoughts on these hard conversations, right? Yeah, I, I think the um, people who are pregnant are, is definitely a difficult conversation to what Jacinda said, I, I also have never had kids, um, so I've never been pregnant before, but I can certainly see the hesitation. I think laying out the facts that the way other vaccines work, um, the way these vaccines work, the VAERS data that we currently have in pregnant women, the pregnant women that were in the studies that, or the women that were in the studies that went on to become pregnant um, and then had completely healthy babies. I think these are all really great things to be touching on with your patients when you're having those conversations. Um, I've had a few colleagues that have gotten pregnant throughout the pandemic and they've all been vaccinated, but I know early on it was available to some of them and they were kind of wavering back and forth. Should I wait until after the baby comes um, and then get it? And that way when I'm breastfeeding, I know there's like less of a risk there. And she ultimately ended up getting it, but I kept giving her the information that we were getting in the, in the moment. I mean, this was January, February of this year. And so we really weren't seeing as much data as we currently are in patients who are pregnant. And so she ended up ultimately getting it. And she almost felt a relief. And now I think being in the hospital during the Delta surge has made me even more scared for my friends who are pregnant because I'm seeing a lot more women who are pregnant or people who are pregnant coming into the hospital and having worse outcomes than I've seen before. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing that. It is scary. Being in healthcare right now is difficult. Um, and I think I just, and I like what you said about empathy and transparency, because I think those are two, I mean, cornerstones and pillars of all of healthcare and all of being a good human for that matter. Um, and that that's kind of how I have approached these very unique, rare scenarios as well. So, you know, my daughter had this terrible reaction to her childhood pertussis series. I'm terrified for her to get a COVID vaccine. 
of course you are. Like, of course you are. That is scary as all get out because you had something terrible happen to you in the past. I would still recommend that you get vaccinated, but I appreciate where you're coming from. And I just think that's really simple to say, but really means a lot to our patients. Yeah. The other thing is when people call and ask me if they should vaccinate their 13 year old son, I fielded this question more and more after the myocarditis report started to emerge, which is understandable. The answer that we give is there is no medical contraindication to a COVID-19 vaccine other than anaphylaxis to a previous COVID-19 vaccine. And I want to underscore that there's no health condition that precludes receiving a COVID-19 vaccine, but I'm not a mother and I, I don't have a 13 year old son. And I can appreciate how scary it is when you're hearing things in the media and the data are frequently misinterpreted and you're having to make a decision for your child. I would recommend vaccination, but I appreciate that that's an easier decision for me to make. So just open-ended empathy in these conversations, I think is so essential to coaching people to make their decision. So that is a good segue to the fact that some of our patients are going to choose not to get vaccinated. And we know that right now, and we're seeing that with the surge and the just incredible proportion of hospitalized patients that are unvaccinated versus vaccinated. And so Jacinda, I want to come to you for this. Patients who don't want to get vaccinated, the term that's thrown around most commonly is vaccine hesitant, right? They're vaccine hesitant or, I mean, anti-vaxxers. And so I think that is uh, important. So first of all, with vaccine hesitant and anti-vax are very different. And I think it's important not to lump them all together. And then in these conversations in general, is vaccine hesitant the right term? Right. So this is a great question. I think that, um, and it's one that I think about often and often elaborate on on, on Twitter. So uh, when we talk about, you know, vaccine hesitant and anti-vax, there are individuals that are just, you know, against vaccine, just inherently, they do not believe in vaccinating themselves nor their children and, or, you know, their, their family members, they don't believe in vaccines. And you know what? I'm not here to judge. That's not the point of the podcast. That's one thing that I always, you know, try to say. When I talk to people about vaccines, I'm very much, you know, is your body do with it what you will. But um, so you you do have those people that won't get vaccinated. But I think for vaccine hesitance, I'm very sensitive about that term because I think that we have to consider a lot of a lot of variables there. So I think that you know, um, Dr. Kimberly Manning, the Grady doctor, she put it best when she said, you know, you have to think about it as slow yeses. And, you know, to kind of uh, redirect the vaccine hesitancy to a lack in vaccine confidence, or maybe, you know, it's more so a vaccine um, confidence issue there. So I kind of veered there, but I'm more so kind of, I think about the the aspect of, of access to the vaccinations. So I remember as we started to see more people get vaccinated and, you know, President Biden, he's, he, he, he hit his goal, you know, what, two, three times over of, you know, 100 million. We are now at far over 100 million that have been fully vaccinated. So he did what he said that he was going to do in terms of vaccinations. Nevertheless, there are still many areas that do not have access to vaccinations. Working on the ground and seeing this, when I ride through communities, we have lines of 300 plus people that line up to get vaccines when we come through and do clinics. And it's because they don't have access to those vaccines. The only time that they can get those vaccines is when we are there. And that's because they don't have the access. Access to these vaccinations are still an issue, but but because we saw so many majority groups being vaccinated, we didn't think about those groups that did not, that had limited access. So instead of saying, you know, we, we have barriers that have not been addressed. We said these people are, these people don't want to be vaccinated. Well, that's not entirely true, right? They just, they don't have access to the vaccine. We haven't created, you know, we haven't made equity a priority. We haven't made vaccine equity a priority here. So I think, you know, we have to think about that. And then we also have to think about, um, we have to think about, we have to think about it in historical context. So when I talk about, you know, the vaccines, when I talk about vaccine confidence, I am a part of a minoritized community. I am a black woman, I have a black family. So I, I do identify with the Tuskegee experiment. I know why that may be something that, that, that is a cause for pause and you people of color, I know about sterilizations. I know why they don't want to be vaccinated, why they don't trust the United States healthcare system. 
So it's my job to show, you know, I am a, I am a person of color. I am dedicated to advocating. I'm dedicated to ensuring that we hold the scientific community responsible and ensuring that these vaccines are safe, that they're efficacious, that they backtrack when they see this isn't the case and, you know, ensure that, that these vaccines are the best that they could be, especially when it comes to minoritized groups. So I think we have to really, you know, we have to separate those people that do not want to be vaccinated because they do not want to be vaccinated against those people that may not have, you know, access. And then those people that may not have the correct information in terms of the vaccine. And then those people that may be, you know, reasonably slow to get it because of a historical context and to be conscious, empathetic, and dedicated to mitigating that gap. Okay. You said, thank you for that. That was really important. And I want to go to the two things you said those who don't have access and those who may not have the right information. Okay. So let's do the access first. Um, and I'm going to come to you for that. And then Jeanette, I want you to be thinking about talking, motivating patients, kind of push them over the edge, so to speak, cross that hump or whatever, those who may not have the right information, again, not necessarily hesitant, but like not quite ready to get vaccinated and, and they don't know why. Right. So we'll come back to that. But Jacinda, I want to talk about the access piece because, you know, these are this is a really important point. There are people who want to and they just simply don't know how or they don't know where or they don't have transportation or they work a shift that doesn't allow them to get to a clinic during the hours of the clinic. And we should be doing midnight clinics for people that work on third shifts and things like that. So how how are you meeting patients where you are? I know you've done just tremendous work in this space and, and have shared it with us on social media. So thank you for that. And in some publications recently. Uh, you're just crushing it. Um, but so how do you meet patients where they are? What can people do? People listening to this pod right now, they're like, I want to go out and help my community. What's your advice for them? So, yeah, I'm, I'm so dedicated to this. And I think I'm more so dedicated because I want to show how important pharmacists are to um, really closing these gaps. Pharmacists are arguably, you know, the most accessible healthcare providers. So like, why, do, why are we not, you know, on the front lines doing this? So needless to say, at the clinic. So we do COVID-19 equitable clinics at Loma Linda University. We've published our methods in uh, several times in the Lancet and, you know, other publications, but nevertheless, so we, we had the, we had a large mass clinic and we saw that we didn't have as many um, individuals of color at the mass vaccination clinic, or they were disproportionately represented on the lower end. So we wanted to amplify their representation. So we went into the communities. So I think our biggest kind of push forward with this is the paper-based registration form and um, being flexible on how it is individuals can um, identify themselves. Because that, that is a barrier, right? When you have those individuals that are undocumented, you know, that don't have documentation, they're fearful to come be vaccinated because they're fearful that they'll be um, taken away or, you know, um, revealed in that way. So we have a paper-based registration form, which then decreases that barrier of um, the social media, the, excuse me, the social or the digital divide with having to go register, find the vaccine clinic on the internet. I mean, when you think about minoritized communities, they're less likely to have access to those measures. So we have the paper-based form where they fill out all of the necessary information and then we hold the clinics within the communities and we utilize and leverage we and, and leverage faith leaders and community leaders to assist us with this measure. So I always, you know, harp on this point and shout out to my pastors because they're my family now. But we included the pastors in our Lancet publication as like authors two through four, because that is just how integral they've been to our success with these clinics and how dedicated they are to fighting COVID-19. And they lend us our church, their churches, right? So they let us come to their churches and wreak havoc for several hours and hold these clinics. But then we also, like you said, we, we worked hard to address that barrier of the time. So then we started splitting our day with clinics. We had several clinics, you know, from uh, 10 to two. And then, we, and then we'd have clinics from like three to seven so that we could make sure that we can get those individuals that maybe get an off work at five and we go there. But then when we started to reach this new climate of vaccine and this climate of access, we started to go knock on the doors of individuals in the community because Loma Linda has a great infrastructure with community health workers. And uh, we, de we developed and you know set up impromptu strike teams um, of like composed of five individuals, so myself, some students, community health worker. And then we would go knock on the doors and say, hey, you know, would you like to be vaccinated? 
And actually our, the president of our university came with us to one of them and he knocked on the door and uh, it was so funny. And so then one of the patients, they said, um, he introduced himself and said, I'm Dick Hart, you know, with Loma Linda University, would you like to be vaccinated? And, I, and then I remember the guy, he told, he said um, to uh, the president, um, Dr. Hart, I wouldn't have been vaccinated if the president of Loma Linda had not come to my doorstep, you know, and asked me if I wanted to receive a vaccine. And um, we had, we've had so many patients become so emotional because they did not think that they would be able to get vaccinated. But, you know, here we are knocking on them, knocking on their door and bringing the vaccine right to them. So I think, you know, it's about rebuilding those trust and relationships, but understanding that, you know, we have to go that extra step. And I'm, I'm really appreciative and I'm thankful to work at an institution that is, is willing to do that and, so, and to support me in doing so. That's so awesome. Thank you for sharing that, especially you're reminding me, I was really close with my grandfather and he couldn't sign himself up for a vaccine. He can barely like, he has a smartphone. I like, I don't even know why he had an iPhone to be honest with you. And, uh, no, but like, anyway, it's such an important point um, and everything you brought up. So thank you for sharing that. All right, Jeanette, your turn. So um, treating patients where they are, access, so important to keep in mind. But then also, you know, patients that may come to you or, you know, or you run into them or whatever, you went to them and they are not a absolutely hard no, but they are not quite ready to get vaccinated for whatever reason. So how do you talk to patients and motivate them that are, are kind of thinking about it? How do you kind of convince them to get vaccinated? Yeah, so this is this is kind of a difficult topic, I think, for a lot of especially healthcare providers where we're talking to patients about this every day. I, I think a lot of it goes back to what Jacinda was saying earlier with the slow yeses. Um, I think starting out, you have to find out where your patient's at, right? So what why aren't they getting the vaccine? What about is the misinformation that they're receiving or um, historical context, like Jacinda was saying, is making them kind of slow to pick up on the vaccine track um, to kind of avoid the word hesitate. But the the number one thing you need to figure out is what kind of you're working with. So what what they're listening to, whether that be certain news stations or social media, and what they're hearing, um, and how you can kind of use the facts and the data to have that discussion with them. Um, and I think the biggest thing that you should avoid is belittling the their information that they do receive because I think that just makes the gap wider. Mm -hmm. Jacinda has an, another mm -hmm. paper out because she, again, is killing the game. And I, I was reading it the past week to kind of help prepare for this podcast. And I really just love the breakdown of like the cornerstones of the, di the varying levels of vaccine hesitant patients and trying to kind of put patients in certain areas to see what you need to be doing in order to help get them to be okay with receiving the vaccine and feel like it's a safe and it's a good choice for them. And so um, open discussions, slow yeses, making sure that you're not making assumptions about them or belittling them are probably some of the biggest cornerstones of getting patients to be vaccinated who maybe don't want to. Yeah, those are great points. Thank you. I Exactly. Cause someone, I mean, if a patient comes to you and they don't want to get vaccinated because they're afraid they're getting microchipped, you might think that is the most absurd thing in the entire world, but that's their truth and they can speak their truth. And you know what? They just trusted you with their truth because they told you what is in their head and what's on their mind. And so that you have to walk them through that, um, with empathy, with transparency, with respect. So yes, to all of this. <laughs> my, mom. my mom is like the biggest, she's probably doing better at the whole getting people to get vaccinated game than I am because she just <laughs> she's, she was front line so she's a dispatcher for a major city right and so she's in this room with police officers and firefighters and all of the dispatchers and they were one of the first in line to get the vaccine and obviously there's not a lot of data and she's listening to conversations in the dispatcher room and texting me she's like is this true is this true what's the truth and so I'm like giving her the facts right and slowly but surely she made sure everyone in that office got vaccinated so she's slaying the game but those she had those slow yeses they'd come back at her and be like well what about this and she'd be like let me ask my daughter don't worry I'm like text me <laughs> while she's working and yeah. so she, she played a lot with the idea of my daughter would not tell me to do something that would hurt me she was like yeah. my daughter loves me <laughs> She has my best interests at heart. And she told me 
to get the vaccine as soon as possible. And so I, I think that also played a large part in it that all of these people know her personally, they, they know our relationship. And so they were able to kind of trust that point of truth mm. as well, that my daughter wouldn't do things to hurt me. And she, this is what she's trained in. And this is what she's telling me. And that's what I'm going to go with. That's amazing. I want to meet your mom. But th- this is <laughs> this this pandemic is a war and it's going to be one in the trenches. And I think that we've known that from the beginning, but it's never been more true. Right. The mass campaign went out and, you know, we're at this certain point and to get the rest of these people to be vaccinated, it's going to take people like your mom and people like the both of you that are doing this kind of work. So thank you for all of that. Okay, I want to shift back a little bit to the equity conversation and the access conversation, because I think these are things we've all learned a lot about over the past 20 months or so. And I think these lessons are important to carry with us forward. So again, now Jacinda's point's very taken about there are still patient populations that we need to go to. But for the most part, from a supply standpoint, like we have vaccines in the United States, we're extremely fortunate, noting that other countries may not have the supply that we have, but there's, there is drug somewhere to be had. It may need to be shifted around and whatnot. Um, but from, at least from where we stand right now, it's not like it was back in December, but in December we didn't have enough and we had to create a strategy for how we were going to roll this out. We had to create strategies on equitable, equitable distribution. What do you, what did you guys take from that time in our lives and, and things from that experience to consider moving forward if and when we ever have to allocate scarce resources again? I think for me, I want to say I didn't realize how much of a priority equity was not. And I don't know if that if that makes, you know, absolute sense. But I mean, I didn't I didn't realize it. And I guess it was something that so when I graduated with my MPH, which was last August, maybe now I'm in that place where I'm just, you know, equity or disparity minded. I don't know. Maybe it's like a special switch that flips when you graduate. Oh, you graduated public health mind. So I don't know if that's what happened, but it was immediately when I saw that the vaccines were available to like individuals 65 and older. And I remember sitting back and I was talking to my husband and he was like, wow, my dad who, you know, had cancer wouldn't even be eligible for the vaccine had he been alive because he died when he was, you know, 50 something years old. And then we thought about a lot of the men in my husband's family and in my family who have, and a lot of, you know, like black individuals, the, the average lifespan is less than that age. So already there, we're already at an inequitable distribution of the vaccine, right? And I think it took for that moment for me to reconcile that this is going to be a, an, an awkward rollout because now we're in we're already starting off in a place of inequity that right. no one thinks about, right? So I learned that last summer when we had to implement a lottery to distribute remdesivir because we had more clinically eligible patients within our health system than we had available drug. So simply put, there's a higher proportion of white patients in the demographic of age 65 and older. So it further heightens structural health disparities when we prioritize based on age. And that is a very important fact. I think all of our pod listeners should be very aware of. I'm not saying there's never a time or a place to prioritize patients age 65 and older. For example, if we had very robust data that said this resource or this drug optimally benefits patients age 65 and older, then of course we want to allocate things to optimize public health. Uh, But I just want to, I guess what I learned is that when making these decisions, there are so many layers to them and some of the systematic disparities are so deep and there's often more than meets the eye when deciding on who gets what and when. Yeah, no. So um, it was, it was very much that. And then moving to California was just different for me. I grew up in Detroit, born and raised, you know, went back to Detroit to train, trained in DC. So I'm, I'm used to more urban, um, urban populations, urban, urban areas. But when I moved to California, they have this this area. I don't know if we have California listeners from like Adelanto, and um, it is we. It's it's not weird. It's it's a great place. But the placement of it, it was. Um, I remember going around and driving around, and I didn't see a pharmacy for miles. I didn't see a hospital for miles. And I remember thinking to myself, how are these people? 
going to receive the vaccine. I've never grown up like you hear about disparities in like rural health care. And um, I'm sure, you know, you both have. I'm not, well, I'm not sure if you both have experienced that, but for me, that was the first time I was really looking at the disparity in, in rural health, in rural health. Like, how are these people supposed to get to vaccines? So then it was once again, you know, that issue. Now I'm looking at different types of barriers, barriers that I didn't even begin to think existed. So it's like, you know, of course you have that barrier of, do I want to get the vaccine? Do I not want to get the vaccine? You have the barrier of social media and misinformation. Lord knows I never knew how, you know, the media could distort <laughs> titles in, in, in literature. I'm like, my goodness, how did you get that from that? So I, I learned that, but I think in terms of equity, as I spoke about with the, um, with the age piece, when it came down to actual access, when it came down to looking at different different populations, just the way that demographics looks when we look at rural versus urban, when we look at transportation, does this area have buses? Does this area not have buses? How are these people supposed to get there to the vaccine? It just, COVID-19 puts so many different things into perspective for me. And it just showed me how, once again, as I've stated throughout, how, how much of a priority equity isn't and how much, uh, how hard of a job and how much of a job and how big of a tax we have to make sure that we continue to push this to the forefront as we move forward addressing other disparities, because this is something that's going to continue to be an issue. Yeah, for sure. Jeanette, do you have anything to add? I'm always in awe of when Jacinda speaks about this because she's just so mesmerizing. So, um, but I completely, I grew up very rurally. And then I also went out to school in Denver, which Denver itself is a city, right? But like right outside of Denver, you start to like drive and there's, it's real, there's a lot of farms and there's a lot of like one person towns up in Wyoming and areas and there's not a lot of cell phone service. And so it's definitely more difficult to get vaccines out in those areas and you kind of, you rely on community health workers and going out and bringing the vaccine clinics to them, like Jacinda's been doing in her areas. And I did a rotation in pharmacy school with the Indian Health Service, right? And so they do a lot of their healthcare. They'll go out to the area. So the hospital is obviously in like a very tiny area of the reservation. And then the reservation is massive. And so they, they need to drive out to these little areas where people actually truly live at and bring them healthcare. And I think those are the kind of ideas that need to be happening in order to continue to provide equitable distribution of these vaccines, which obviously is manpower, which a lot of us right now are at a limited amount because of how long this pandemic is going on and we're running out of steam. But um, I think Jacinda has been someone who I look up to during this entire pandemic because she doesn't, one, seem to be running out of steam currently, but... <laughs> I'm dead. Like I'm there. dead. <laughs> no steam. <laughs> but you're out there. You're you're going to knocking on doors, and I appreciate that so much about you because that's what we need in this pandemic. Um, we need physicians in the hospital asking their patients before they leave because a lot of times this is the only patients go to the yeah. hospital for a serious event and then they leave and they don't go back to the healthcare system. They don't think about the vaccines. So hitting them there in order to get to them before they head back out to their more rural areas. Um, so these are all ideas we need to be kind of thinking about when we're thinking about equitable, equitable distribution from a minority standpoint, but then also like a rural standpoint. Yeah, I agreed. And I think this can all be summarized with, we've learned that we need to treat patients where they are and whether that means like stop expecting people to come to us because that just doesn't make any sense. We have to treat patients where they are. Um, we've put a lot of emphasis on that in, um, I think you guys know, I, I lead a, the REMAP trial for the United States and at UPMC, like the trial's embedded into the EHR. So any patient that's admitted to any hospital, including all of our critical and rural hospitals, they get the same intake form as the academic center. And we can send them over FaceTime and they sign it over DocuSign. And it's like, you can do these things, right? We just never thought about it before the pandemic. So as awful as everything's been, there are some silver linings in that we learned that, you know, things we may not have thought of because they're different or leveraging these technologies or whatnot, like you can do them. You can go sit in a church parking lot and vaccinate people. Um, you can go do all of these things. I think the other big lesson I learned, um, I'll just share is that first come first serve is actually not equitable. So just send it to your point of that, like we think we're equitable and we're not. Uh, that was something I learned early, like March 2020 conversations, and it's really stuck with me because 
Um, and, and the reason for that is because patients from disadvantaged neighborhoods or areas with higher area of deprivation index scores are less likely to access healthcare. And so if you limit a treatment to, you have to get the treatment within seven days or something like that, you're actually disadvantaging those who are not going to access care. And so mm -hmm. that, um, I think is just, that's something I've learned that I'll carry forward forever. That first come first serve is actually very unequitable, um, in, yep. at least in the, in the healthcare space. So thank you guys. This is just, this is a very, this is an awesome discussion. I really appreciate your time. Um, we're getting to the end here and I want to kind of end with some, some pointed questions. We'll do these kind of rapid fire, uh, just some take home messaging uh, for our audience about vaccines. And so the first, I want you to say, you know, somewhat pointedly, what do you think the, the single most important message is to convey to our patients right now regarding vaccination? Get vaccinated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Get one. <laughs> Get what? Um, I think, you know, it's important to just say, you know, they're, they're well studied, um, that we are calibrating based on new information and that, you know, I, I it's so cliche when, when everyone says this, but when you vaccinate yourself, you protect those around you. And that's so important. We have to, we have to remember, you know, those people around us, if not yourself, remember those people that live in the house with you, that work with you and think about their families. I would have to agree. I think get vaccinated is the bit, pretty much the biggest point. Um, yeah, absolutely. Getting vaccinated is like your civic duty and like your obligation as a human right now. Um, and I, I, it, yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Okay. Next, I want you guys to share what your most memorable patient story is from the past eight to nine months or so, however long we've been vaccinating of a patient got vaccinated and you've shared some along the way already, but any other, uh, feel good stories. So, um, I had a patient, we, it was the last patient whose door we knocked on and I was exhausted y'all. Like, I was like, I'm not trying to do this. So it's like, you know, eight, eight 30 at night and we go knock on the door and, um, it's a Mexican family and they were literally like the best people I've ever met in my entire life. So we get there and then, um, they're like, oh, the doctor's here. She's going to vaccinate us. And they are so excited. So I vaccinate the daughter. And, you know, before she could say two words, I'm already done. So then her mom, like, was like, I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it. And then the daughter was like, mom, I'm already finished. So then the mom says, all right, I'm going to get it. And so, but she was going to Mexico. Like, you know, she was going back to Mexico, I think, two weeks afterwards. And um, she was traveling back and forth with had a sick relative. And then she was like, okay, so um, if I get vaccinated, um, will you, will like, how will I be able to get the other vaccine? And we walked through the process, whatever. So then she decides to get vaccinated. And so then um, after she gets vaccinated, they then like set up this light so that we could take pictures. And I actually have the pictures like on my Instagram because it was the best moment. I remember just like getting into the car and I sobbed because I had never like, I think, you know, I do all these clinics and they move so fast and I'm like, okay, like I, I do, I know what I'm doing, but I don't really sit there and, you know, like acknowledge what I'm doing, but they called me, um, I can't remember. They call me Saint something, but it's, it's basically like a black, a black a, a black lead, I don't know, a deity that they have um, in the uh, Mexican culture or part of the Mexican culture. And that's what they called me when I was there. But I remember her daughter and her niece, they sobbed because they said that she like refused to get vaccinated and they were trying so hard to get her vaccinated. But when I came in, she was like, all right, you know, I'm going to do it. And I just, I, I think about that moment all the time and I ride by their house and I think about them all the time <laughs> and it was like I, I I'll stop rambling but it was to date like the very best moment of my life that's amazing do you guys get married I love my husband <laughs> <laughs> your mom's birthday <laughs> I know uh, um <laughs> Do you guys feel like, like a superhero when you vaccinate a patient and they're, they either say something like, oh, that was so fast. You're like, oh, I didn't even feel that. Are you just like, do you just soak that in? Cause I do. I'm like, 
I'm like, I'm like yeah. Beyonce. I know. Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I'm like, there's no greater compliment than for you to tell me I vaccinated you and you right. like it, it didn't hurt and it was fast. And like, then I'm yes. always like in Jesus name, I hope they're protected. That's, yeah. That's <laughs> what I'm here for. Like, it makes me so happy. <laughs> makes me feel like oh. somewhat of a professional. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Pharmacist. Yeah. You're like, I have this, I have a certificate in this thank you thank you you. oh man Jeanette what's your favorite story um probably one of my most memorable stories is early on I was um in the vaccine clinic at the hospital a little bit more and it was the first wave and this older woman came over and her son had brought her in to get vaccinated and she kind of shuffles over to my table because the, the pharmacists are preparing the doses. I mean, you just sit there and just like fill syringes all day and the nurses grab the syringes and go. And she comes over and he's like, she has a question for you. So she she's like, when can I go out again? <laughs> and I was like, well, it takes about two weeks after your second dose, and then you can feel fully vaccinated. And she was like, not seven days. Can I go out this weekend? And the son goes, she said two weeks, ma. And I was like, yeah, that's what you should do is like that. That's how vaccines were studied. So you should probably wait the two weeks before you go out to your parties. And she was like, okay. And she like shuffled <laughs> off. And I was like, this is the moment everyone has been waiting for in this pandemic. I mean, this is like January. And I'm like, this is what people have been waiting for is to just feel safe again. And like the joy on her face to just be like, when can I go out? Cause I'm sure she was just in the house and that's, it, it's hard to be in the house, especially when you're older and there's not a whole lot of visitors and stuff. It gets lonely. We can't mm-hmm. use technology. I mean, I scroll on my phone all day, but if I wasn't able to scroll on my phone all day, I think I would go insane. Yeah. When I remember, I'm sure you guys had this too, when we started back in December and started vaccinating the senior communities, man, they, um, would just stay and talk. I think they loved waiting in line. Cause they were like around all these people for the first time in a long time. And then they would sit for their vaccine and they would be like, okay, you're done. And they would just sit and talk and talk. We actually changed our appointment time. Like we had these like five minute chair, you know, trying to get all these people in and out. I was like, we got to stretch this to like nine minutes. Cause these people like deserve three minutes of conversation because, right. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. They've been, so. They've been waiting for this conversation with strangers for a year. I know. I know. It was a hard time. Um, Awesome. Well, thank you guys for sharing that. As we wrap up the podcast today, we have a new segment of Breakpoints called I Feel Nerdy. I Feel Nerdy is meant to be a safe place for our panelists to nerd out over their favorite ID topics, quirks, and fun facts. And so for today's I Feel Nerdy, I want you guys to share your least favorite COVID, I'm going to use the word therapy lightly, least favorite COVID therapy. I've been like agonizing over which one I'm going to choose for about a week now. Because you hate them all. (laughs) Like which one's on top? I don't know. I think probably azithromycin has to be on top because it's like that sneaky one that still kind of like rolls in every now and again where I'm like, "Ah, why is this azithromycin on my patient right now? And it's literally for COVID. And I'm like, can we stop the azithromycin for COVID? It's not even for like, cat or anything not even for all the other so not even for all the other bogus reasons we prescribe is yeah. right not for my normal stewardship like, job it's yeah not for all good. not for the other reasons i've been stopping azithro for five years yeah. <laughs> really oh. i have a dot phrase now in epic i'm just like please stop the azithromycin yeah so I, that, dot stop the madness because it's lingering it's just <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness um, I think mine is ivermectin. Yeah, and yeah. honestly, I, it's because of the memes. I'm so tired of the memes. If I see another horse meme, <laughs> I'm going to scream. So it's definitely the ivermectin. And it's so funny because it's like, who talked about ivermectin before this? And then it's like when I have to explain to people that the in vitro trials are in nanograms. <laughs> and then I have to tell them, how you convert nanograms and I'm like so do you understand that there's like all it's almost impossible to simulate this you know in a human so I think um definitely ivermectin for sure azithromycin is a close second hydroxychloroquine which still is skirting 
on um, the outskirts is a very, very close third. <laughs> those are very good answers. I know. And I feel like with those kinds of like the hydroxychloroquines, the ivermectins, the azithromycins of the world, you know, everyone like, I feel like we're screaming into this void and it's like, listen, I want nothing more on this earth than for there to be a cheap, safe, effective, oral, globally available outpatient treatment for COVID. Like, yes, those are all of my wants and dreams and hopes as well. But just like data is data. And it, I think that's like been the frustrating part is like, just cause I'm telling you that it doesn't work. Doesn't mean I'm like a horrible person or that I don't want it to work. Um, and that I, gosh, it's, you know, that's just been a battle, but I wish um, all of the wishes in the world to treat your scabies and your COVID at the same time. And you know what, now you can just get vaccinated. And so that is the message we are going to leave with today, um, that the COVID-19 vaccines, all of them that are available in the United States are amazing. And we are so thankful for them. And I am so thankful for both of you today for being just phenomenal panelists. Uh, so to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to Breakpoints, the SIDP podcast. Today, we deep dove into COVID-19 vaccines and how we can better reach our patients and our communities. This podcast was sponsored by an unrestricted medical education grant from Janssen Biotech. I have been your host, Erin McCreary, and our featured speakers today have been Dr. Jacinda Abdul-Mutakabir and Jeanette Bouchard. This episode was produced by Zara Escobar and Rachel Britt, and it was edited by Melissa Badowski, Lena Meng, and Courtney Mock. Our production team includes Kelly Cole and Anna Zhao. The executive producers of Breakpoints are Julie Ann Justo and Erin McCreary. Our theme song was recorded by SIDP member Steve Smoke. And you can subscribe to Breakpoints on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and helping SIDP achieve our vision of safe and effective antimicrobials for now and the future.